0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary VTW. Void reward prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus
1: the following podcast is based on actual x-files cases <sighs>
2: begins where it ends, a nothingness, a nightmare born from deepest fears, coming to me unguarded, whispering images unlocked from time and distance, a soul unbound, touched by others but never held, on a course charted by some unseen hand. A journey ahead promising no more than my past reflected back upon me, until at last I reached the end. Facing a truth I can no longer deny. Alone, as
3: ever. That makes eight for eight. Are you in adoption
4: services,
3: Mike. Yeah, now I'm at the maternity ward.
4: ...fetching young mothers in there? Yeah, I think you might have a shot here, Frodo. Do you know anything about pharmaceuticals? Medicinal or uh,
3: recreational?
5: Have you ever seen Mr. Potato Head? Welcome back to X-Files Truth. Today's file is Emily. X-File number classified. The plot. In a dreamlike sequence... Scully walks through a desert and picks up a gold cross necklace in the sand. Continuing from the previous episode, Mulder arrives at the hospital in San Diego, where Scully introduces him to Emily. Mulder tells Scully that he had Frohickey look into Emily's case. Her surrogate mother is a woman named Anna Fugazi, slang for fake, and there are no true records of how Emily came into the world. Mulder, along with Scully's family, attend a meeting regarding Emily's adoption at the San Diego Hall of Justice. Mulder tells the judge that Emily was conceived from Scully's ova, which was taken from her during her abduction, which the judge does not believe. Later, Scully receives a call from the County Children's Center that cuts off abruptly. She and Mulder head there, where they find Emily safe, but coming down with a fever. They find a greenish cyst on the back of Emily's neck. Later, when a nurse pierces the cyst with a needle, green liquid comes out, causing her to become gravely ill, yet Emily appears unaffected. Mulder believes that Emily has the same body chemistry that they've seen before with the alien-human hybrids.
3: The ER doctor is in and out of consciousness.
2: How did you know?
3: If Emily is someone's creation... And it occurred to me that she might share the same body chemistry that we've seen before. So I had them put the ER doctor in a cooling bath like you did when I was exposed to this.
5: Dr. Calderon, Emily's doctor who works for a company called Prangin, refuses to transfer Emily's medical records to the County Children's Center, prompting Mulder to rough him up, but has to leave when security arrives. Later, Mulder follows Calderon after he leaves his office. Scully has imaging tests conducted on Emily. Calderon goes to see the dark-suited men, one of whom kills him by stabbing him in the neck with an alien stiletto. He came to see me. He knows I'm involved. Now you brought him to see us?
3: Uh, What do you want me to tell him?
2: Nothing.
5: then morph into Calderon. Mulder follows as one of them leaves. The results of Emily's tests show her to be suffering from a tumorous infection. The other Calderon arrives at the hospital and injects Emily with an unknown green substance. He escapes by morphing into someone else. Scully believes that he is continuing the treatments and the Sims were murdered because they were trying to stop him. Mulder follows the first Calderon clone into a building where he meets Anna Fugazi, an elderly woman in a nursing home. The doctor tells Scully that Emily is getting worse. A woman from the adoption agency arrives and wants to stop Scully from making decisions for Emily. Mulder connects the names of the women in the nursing home to the recent births and finds that Dr. Calderon was treating them.
4: Christina Sherman, delivered a healthy baby girl September 25th, 1994. Gretchen Miller. Delivered a baby boy March 18th,
3: 1996. Evelyn
4: Burmeister. Evelyn Burmeister. Delivered a baby boy June 21st, 1994. Makes eight for eight you in adoption services, Mulder? No, I'm at the maternity ward. Any fetching young mothers in there? Yeah, I think you might have a shot here, Froggy. you know anything about pharmaceuticals? Medicinal or uh,
3: recreational? There's two prescriptions on their med charts that all these women have in common. Abbreviated PMZ200 and Dirtab.
4: Estrogen and progesterone. Hormones. But that doesn't make any sense, Mulder. Pregnant women have those hormones in abundance. You wouldn't give those to pregnant women.
5: You would these. Emily reacts badly to being placed in the hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Mulder finds medical records with Scully's name on them at the nursing home, along with a live fetus in a refrigerated chamber. Mulder finds Calderon entering soon after, and Detective Kresge arrives as well. Mulder and Kresge confront Calderon, who attacks Kresge. Despite Mulder's warning, Kresky shoots Calderon, whose wound caused him to spew green blood, which incapacitates Kresge. Mulder quickly leaves the building to avoid being affected by the blood. Calderon morphs into Kresge and deceives Mulder and escapes. Mulder returns to the hospital where Emily has gone into a coma. Days later, Emily has died. Mulder visits Scully at the funeral chapel, telling her that Kresge is recovering, and all evidence at the nursing home and Pranjan is gone. The only evidence left is Emily's body, but the agents instead find sandbags in her coffin, along with Scully's cross necklace, which she had previously given to Emily.
2: Who are the men who would create a life whose only hope is to die? I don't know.
3: But that you found her and you had a chance to love her. Maybe she was meant for that, too.
2: She found me.
3: So you could save her.
2: I was Detective Kresge.
3: He's he's doing better. He's out of the ICU.
2: And the men who did this to him?
3: They already cleaned up the nursing home. All the women have been placed in new homes. There's no evidence that anyone else at the Grand Janna Corporation knew of Calderon's work.
2: There is evidence of what they did.
5: Hand in your field report. And now for my field report for Emily. I like Emily a lot better than Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol was um it was still good, but Emily kind of surprises you with the amount of mythology that we get in this one. You don't expect it because of the Christmas Carol episode, which isn't so heavy with the mythology in the alien human hybrids, in the clones morphing into other humans and everything like that. And I forgot how much I liked Emily. So this episode gives you a little bit of that early X-Files seasons feel when you see the clones morphing into other people. And that was probably my favorite thing about the episode, the feeling that it gave you of that, you know, season one, season two type of thing. And even though it's a really good episode compared to other X-Files episodes, or at least other mythology episodes, it's not one of my top ones. Like I said, it's a good one, but it's not a top mythology episode to all X-Files episodes though I'd probably give it an eight, 8.5 maybe something like that on the mythometer obviously it's a mythology episode and for the sequelizer it probably has a low potential for a sequel which is really weird because mythology episodes always have high potentials obviously for a sequel because they're part of the mythology but this particular branch of the mythology with Emily I mean she's dead and she's gone so there's not too much you could do with that, you know what I mean? It's it's odd that you would have a low potential for a sequel in a mythology episode, but that's how I'd rate this one anyway. And that's about all I have for Emily. Now I'm going to go listen to the other agent's files and see what they have. So let's head down to the chem lab now and see what Agent Angela has for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for Emily.
1: agents, this latter half of a two-parter picks up from The Shocker at the end of Christmas Carol. Scully's possibly the biological mother of three-year-old Emily, who was created through unknown means, possibly during Scully's abduction. In this episode of the same name, we learn of Emily's ultimate dark fate, and it's obviously something that's going to stick with Scully for a long time. How could it not? Despite some others' claims of purple prose, I personally love the haunting opener of her finding her cross necklace in the sand, then turning to sand herself. It's prophetic, and we'll see why.
2: The journey ahead promising no more than my past reflected back upon me, until at last I reached the end. Facing a truth I can no longer deny. Alone as ever.
1: Mulder visits with Scully and Emily at the children's home, and it's so sweet how he interacts with the little girl, finally getting her to talk, even if it's just one word. He also has the troubling news that Emily's true origins are even more of a mystery than they thought. He's reluctant to testify on Scully's behalf for custody, for one simple reason. He doesn't want her further put in harm's way. The same reason he kept the entire truth of this genetic experimentation a secret, until now. The exchanges between Mulder and Scully are so bittersweet in these early scenes. He knows how tough this whole thing is on her, emotionally, despite Scully's tough and stoic facade. The two of them have such a build-up partnership and level of trust by now that Emily's doctor even wonders at first if they're the girl's parents. Mulder also knows, before anyone, that piercing that green cyst on the back of her neck will be deadly. Mulder and Scully soon hit a roadblock when Dr. Calderon refuses to release any medical records and Mulder's in the right for roughing him up. It reminds us just how terrible it is, what's been done to these women and their unborn children and for what sinister purpose? Despite Mulder's efforts to get answers, Emily continues to worsen from an unknown growth through her nervous system. Insult to injury, Scully gets confronted by the social worker about her making decisions for Emily's treatment when she reportedly has no authority. By the time Mulder and Scully meet back up, the little girl's in a coma. Scully's resigned to this now. Sadly, it was meant to be. And yeah, Emily was only created to serve an agenda. Sweet as it is, Scully needs to be alone with this tragedy, and Mulder does give her the space she needs. It only gets even sadder, as Scully lays down and spends some of Emily's last moments next to her so she doesn't pass away alone. At Emily's funeral, Mulder comes in with flowers at the very end, letting Scully know that the little girl's life wasn't totally meaningless. She was found and loved for however brief a time, before returning to Sand Only the cross necklace remaining. Until next time, this is Agent Angela. Counterintelligence Inside Information
6: This is Agent Stone with Counterintelligence with X5.7, Emily. Original air date, December 14, 1997. Written by Vince Gilligan, John Scheiben, and Frank Spotnitz. Directed by Kim Manners. It begins where it ends, in nothingness. A nightmare born from deepest fears coming to me unguarded. Whispering images unlocked from time and distance. A soul unbound, touched by others but never held. On a course charted by some unseen hand. The journey ahead promising no more than my past reflecting back upon me. Until at last I reach the end, facing a truth I can no longer deny. Alone as ever. In this episode, Scully fights to protect her daughter's life while Mulder discovers her true origins. It is eventually discovered that Emily was created during Scully's abduction. Emily suffers from a tumorous infection and subsequently dies. Emily is the second of a two part story that began with Episode 6 Christmas Carol. The young actress, who originally played Emily, was terrified of the hospital setting in the episode sequel, Emily, and as a result, the producers had to recast the role and reshoot all footage featuring her, including her scene featured in this episode, and reshoot all footage featuring her in the previous episode, Christmas Carol. Director Kim Manners recalls, I called Bob Goodwin and said, We're dead in the water here, pal. This little actress is not cooperating at all. We recast that role and started up again the next day. The show's casters replaced her with Lauren Dywald, who had previously appeared on an episode of Millennium. Due to the show's shooting schedule, the producers were unable to use Jillian Anderson to reshoot the previous episode's scenes, resulting in Anderson's double being used instead, with the footage pieced together in the editing room. The building used for the nursing home in this episode was picketed by anti-redevelopment protesters due to the building being converted into a condominium complex. As a result, the producers kept a low profile by removing all X-Files insignia from their clothing. A number of protesters still arrived, forcing the police to get involved. From The Inquisitor, August 21, 2016. Bizarre UFO Abduction Woman claims 18 alien fetus abortions after being impregnated by grey and reptilian aliens who abducted her. An Italian woman, Giovanna Pata, came forward in 2010 with one of the most bizarre alien abduction stories ever. She claimed in an interview with an Italian TV channel that she had her first alien abduction experience at the age of 4. She also claimed that grey aliens performed artificial insemination on her 18 times and each time deliberately aborted the alien hybrid fetus that resulted. According to Giovanna, the aliens used her to perform hybridization experiments. She said that the last alien artificial insemination she received was from another alien race, the reptilians, who told her they were enemies of the gray aliens. Giovanna allegedly got human doctors to abort her reptilian-human hybrid fetus. The doctors reportedly examined her for pregnancy and found she was carrying a fetus with a cardiac rhythm similar to a human baby's. But they were shocked to find that she was not carrying a human baby, but a mysterious form unknown to science that she claimed was a reptilian-human hybrid, according to UFO Blogger. She had her first alien abduction experience at four years old. Gray aliens took her on board their flying saucer UFO and placed her on a metal bed. They performed various physical examinations and experiments on her. They also collected tissue and blood samples from her body. When she was older, they began inseminating her with alien sperm. She had 18 successful alien hybrid conceptions, but the aliens removed all the fetuses from her womb after two months and continued growing them in laboratory test tubes. She claimed that each time they were going to remove the fetus, they would come down from their hovering alien UFO spacecraft and take her on board after making her unconscious by shooting a ray. Sometimes they would come into her bedroom to perform procedures and operations on her. She said that on several occasions when she returned home after being away for hours, her father would be very upset with her because he thought she had stayed out with her friends. Over several years, she was taken repeatedly on board alien UFOs, and during the period she learned a lot about the aliens who communicated with her telepathically. The aliens were from a very distant star system, but they had established bases on the moon and several underground bases on Earth where they were conducting biogenetic hybridization research and abducting human females for use in their research. Giovanna claimed she used her cell phone camera to snap many photos and videos of the aliens. Some of the aliens were grey alien looking and others appeared to be reptilians. This is a classic depiction of a grey alien with their classic height, eyes, head and the classic circumstances of them coming into a room and abducting people, explained an analyst who examined the photos. About 80% of abduction cases are the greys. They have a certain coldness, and in fact, Giovanna says that they have no morals, the analyst continued. They don't have any good or bad in them, apparently. The Inquisitor reported that alien hunters implicate the short greys in majority of alien abductions. They are believed to have been genetically engineered by the tall greys. Several photos allegedly taken by Giovanna were uploaded to several online conspiracy theory forums, such as Before It's News. The photos supposedly show the alien-human hybrid fetus doctors removed from her womb during an abortion performed in 2010. Experts reportedly said the photos did not appear to have been altered. According to Giovanna, the aliens use her for hybridization and breeding experiments because their species was endangered. The aliens were unable to reproduce themselves as a result of genetic abnormalities. They chose Giovanna and several other human females for use in breeding research to conserve their species after they found that the human race was genetically compatible with theirs. Giovanna learned from the aliens that they were researching developing a a new alien-human hybrid race. The hybrid race would be dominantly alien in genetic composition, but just enough expression of human genes to make them adapted to life on Earth. She also hinted during an interview that the human race could be in danger because once the aliens have developed a viable alien-human hybrid race, they would proceed to exterminate the human race and repopulate Earth with their new alien-human hybrid species, as the Inquisitor reported. Human doctors reportedly examined her and found that she had strange implant in the center of her brain. The doctors were baffled because they were unable to explain how the metallic capsule was placed there. But Giovanna explained that the aliens pushed the metal into her brain through her nose using a strange instrument. She showed interviewers a photo taken by a friend soon after the surgery to implant the capsule in her brain. The photo showed her with strange marks and mysterious fluorescent substance on her body. She said that during several abductions when the aliens performed surgical procedures, they left visible marks on her body. They also often spread a strange fluorescent powder. The alien surgeons told her that they used the fluorescent substance as a disinfectant to prevent her from getting infections from them. It also protected the aliens from getting infections from her. Samples of the strange powder were allegedly collected from her room, around her residence, and from her lawn. The substance was tested at an institute in Bologna, Italy and allegedly found not to be a natural substance. It allegedly had strange magnetic properties. The aliens also used human subjects to develop vaccines and antibodies. They injected humans with viruses that were lethal to them but harmless to humans, and then returned to collect blood and tissues used to cure alien viral infections. Giovanna released a statement after she came forward with her weird testimony. The Greys, her abductors, are a race that unlike us have no feelings, she said. This explains this cynicism of their actions. They can feel neither love nor hate, and when they impregnate me, they do it artificially and not sexually. Even if they are technologically advanced, the sole fact that we are human beings makes us superior to them. Giovanna's story generated a lot of public interest and sparked furious debate on alien conspiracy theory forums. Her story also encouraged others who had gone through similar alien abduction experiments to come forward after suffering in silence for many years due to fear of ridicule. As for now, I'd say this case is open. So, the final word on Emily, does FBI stand for Federal Bureau of Imagination?
3: What's going on out there?
1: What's out there for Emily? My first review this time is on the Unwelcome Commentary blog. It reads, It was odd, but at the same time entirely predictable a decision to make the follow up to Christmas Carol so conspiracy heavy. What sets this episode's predecessor apart from recent conspiracy episodes was that character was put ahead of action a decision which has resulted in several strong mythology episodes in recent seasons. It's also disappointing that after driving so much of the action in Part 1, Scully takes a back seat to Mulder, who seizes control of the mystery and does his regular truth-hunting thing. There are some impressive moments along the way, and a welcome proclivity to avoiding vagueness, but it's still a disappointing second part. Don't get me wrong, Emily is by no means bad, it has a sense of urgency which is always fun to watch, as well as effective throwbacks to some of the more successful conspiracy theories of the past, such as Scully's abduction, the harvesting of OVA, and the oozing shapeshifters. I also like the reveal of the retirement home being used as some kind of baby factory. It's such a horrible idea, taking advantage of defenseless elderly folk like that, but it works in a horrifyingly sci-fi way. But there's undeniably a feeling that this has all been done before, which lessens a lot of the episode's potential. It's cool seeing the alien fetus move, but we've had at least three exact scenes in the past with Mulder or Scully opening up one of those tubes. Same with the shapeshifters, again tricking Mulder and escaping the scene. While a lot of this is effective, it's, possible to ignore, it's impossible to ignore the fact that we've seen all this already. While Scully isn't as active a participant here, likewise her family, their reaction to last episode's doozy of a cliffhanger occurring off screen, there are some wonderful moments. The imagery of the teaser is pretty remarkable. Ignoring the annoying Chris Carter narration, while Jillian perfectly conveyed Scully's horror, while she watched Emily undergo the CAT scan, just like she did last season. And although Emily's death isn't the dramatic sucker punch I'm sure the writers were hoping for. You still do feel for Scully, who clearly saw this as a gift of motherhood after all she's been through. Emily isn't great, but it works occasionally. So what do I think? I do agree that one of the strongest parts of this episode's writing is the fact that we're made to feel so much empathy for Scully. So many events of the past five seasons, going right back to her abduction, have left her with a raw deal in many different ways. Even though she has Mulder's unwavering loyalty and support, it's no surprise she often feels alone in this world. My second review comes from the Review Is Out There blog and it reads in part It's not that I don't find the death of a child sad. I do. But I don't know this child we're supposed to feel sad for. Emily Sim isn't a character. She's a plot device. This is one of the main problems the mythology, actually the show, has with these characters and their family members family in this show is either barely there, or is somehow entangled with aliens and conspiracies. Anything else seems to get in the way of Mulder and Scully, and that's something the writers could never figure out how to get quite right. I'm not saying it's necessarily impossible, but there hasn't been a successful plotline of this type yet. Even though Christmas Carol and Emily are technically mythology episodes, they feel incredibly isolated. Almost nothing explored in these two will have much bearing on the rest of the series, except for one thing I don't want to give away for newcomers. At the same time, however, Emily has a lot more going on than Christmas Carol. That doesn't necessarily mean it's better, just not mind-numbingly boring. At least in this episode, we have chases, Mulder yelling at people, alien bounty hunters, and green goo. And maybe, to partially retract my statement above, Mulder's presence does make everything better. It makes me feel better, at least. What isn't better is Scully's reaction to him being there. As silly and hokey as the opening monologue is, the writers try to be consistent with the theme by making up this silly idea about Scully being alone. Okay, they don't make it up exactly, but Scully isn't completely alone on this planet. She has Mulder, doesn't she? I can't relate to the loss of a child, but in a way, no one can in the way they've presented it here. The situation is much too wild, making the emotional angle of the episode completely skewed. Mulder is really lovely in this episode, and his humanity and integrity shine through. Maybe that's why for me, his presence improves this episode a little. He's a great person, and Scully knows it too, even if she is acting like she's all alone in the universe. far as my two cents, I have to somewhat disagree that it's impossible to find the death of Emily tragic. Even though she's not relatable, and does serve mostly as a silent plot device, she never deserved to be born only to die from this terrible affliction. And yeah, I have the unpopular opinion of liking what I think is poetic monologue, and what most of the rest of the fandom calls purple prose. I think it partially comes from becoming a fan of the X-Files when I was pretty young, before cynicism settled in. And partially because I'm just a diehard romantic. My final word on Emily? It begins where it ends, in nothingness. Character profiles. But these aren't humans, Scully. Profiles in character. From
6: the look say they were This week's profile, William Scully Jr. William Bill Scully Jr. was portrayed by Pat Skipper and Ryan DeBoer and Joshua Murray during childhood flashbacks. He was the eldest son of William and Margaret Scully and brother to Dana, Melissa, and Charles Scully. Bill Jr. had followed in his father's footsteps and joined the U.S. Navy. Bill Jr. was never impressed with Fox Mulder and got angry with Dana when she did not tell him about her cancer. He did not understand why she had not told anyone why she was still at work. Dana told him she still had responsibility to the people in her life even though she had not told them about it. Bill angrily asked Dana if her responsibility was to Mulder, and if so, why was he not with her after she was pushed down the stairs by Michael Kritschkow? She ignored his question. Dana Scully ended up in the hospital after she collapsed at the hearing into Mulder's death. Mulder first met Bill Jr. when he and his mother came to visit Scully. Bill asked Mulder to leave the work out of Scully's illness to let her die with dignity. Later, when Mulder brought the chip to Scully as a possible cure, Bill again attacked him. He accused Mulder of being the reason why he lost one sister, and now it seemed like he was losing Dana, too. Bill became increasingly worried about his sister when she stayed with him and his wife Tara one Christmas. Dana received a strange phone call that led to the house of a woman who had apparently committed suicide. Scully believed that the voice on the phone was Melissa's. She disappeared from the house, physically and emotionally, quite a bit over the Christmas holidays, and Bill became worried when she told him she believed Melissa rang from beyond the grave to get her to help Emily Sim, and that she believed Emily was Melissa's daughter. He sympathized with Scully's desire to have a child because he and Tara had not been able to become parents for years until the time of the episode. He tried to convince her Melissa was not Emily's mother and showed her a photograph of Melissa obviously not pregnant about four weeks before Emily was born, to which Dana replied that there may have been surrogate motherhood and that the family did not know much about Melissa's whereabouts at that time. Bill and Mrs. Scully are shocked to learn that Dana Scully is in fact Emily's mother. They all attended Emily's funeral and were distraught for Scully. William Patterson Pat Skipper was born September 23, 1958. And he's a television, film, and voice actor. Pat is probably best known for his television work on such shows as The X-Files and Boston Legal. On film, he played Carducci in Hellraiser 4 Bloodline, Mason Strode from Halloween, Seabiscuit's Vet from Seabiscuit, Bob from Fits and Starts, and Agent Elroy from Chain of Command. He also wrote a book called The Working Actor in 2015. Skipper was born in Lakeland, Florida. He was educated at Florida State University and Yale University. He is married to composer-arranger Jennifer Hammond, and their twins, Jack and Amelia, were born in 2002. You can also see Pat in other films, such as Wall Street, Lethal Weapon 2, Predator 2, Memoirs of Invisible Man, Demolition Man, Independence Day, That 70's Show, American Summer, and many others.
2: You checked your email?
5: I found these in my email this morning. And now the female with the emails, Agent Angela.
1: Hey everyone, we got a blast from the past from Darklin Corvin on Facebook, one of whose favorite episodes is Firewalker from way back in season two. Now, it's generally not one of the more memorable episodes among a lot of fans, but when one of these pops up as someone's favorite, I need to rewatch it. Since I wasn't around for season 2 on XFT, I'm going to give my pretty brief take on Mulder and Scully in Firewalker. After the cold open, our heroes are in the basement office, watching a tape of a news report on the robotic explorer Firewalker, who also resembles an insect. And now inexplicably at the bottom of a volcano. One of the most memorable moments recalls how Scully's recently back and recovered from the ordeal of her abduction. Mulder's concern is touching, but she does need to get back to work for her own sake and for the sake of their partnership. Soon after, we get some more iconic scenes of Mulder and Scully searching around with flashlights in a dark room. Never gets old. By the end of this strange tale of a silicon-based life form, Scully's had to give Mulder the message, once again, that she's back, and she's not going anywhere. Damn right. Even in this episode, that's not as much of a crowd favorite among many, it's obvious how much she is back, in her rightful place, as a skeptic counterweight to Mulder. Thanks for that, Darkland Corbin. How about the rest of you? Got any early season favorites you'd like mentioned? Drop us a note on Facebook or Twitter. Next up, I ran across a pretty cool link on Twitter from X-Files News about how the X-Files is one of the three most-watched shows in the entire world. Um, yeah, we already indeed could have told you that. Head on over to our Twitter to check that out, and give us a follow if you haven't already. That's what I've got for this time around. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at X-Files underscore truth, and you could also drop us an email if you'd like at XFilesTruth at live.com or visit our website, xfilestruth.com. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really love it if you'd leave us a star rating or a short review on iTunes. The truth is still out there, and it's never been more dangerous.
6: On X-Files Truth, the serial killer known as The Pusher, a man with the inexplicable ability to impose his own will on others, escapes from a maximum security prison. He immediately pursues the man who captured him, Mulder.
2: so tough Emily you believe you will never ever never, ever find
5: that, that closes the file for Emily and remember if you'd like to have your voice on X-Files Truth just record whatever you want to say that's X-Files related and put it in MP3 format and email it to us as an attachment and we'll put it in the show if you want to find out about the music that we used on the show today just go to xfilestruth.com. we list it there with links to our other content and I guess that does it for Emily which was a pretty cool two part mythology kind of unexpected we will see you guys next month for another good episode we get to see Pusher again in Kitsunagari Did you like that one, puppies? (laughs) I made this. 20th Century
6: Fox.
0: Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lop.